0: I'm the 1995 MAKO president and 2016 MAKO's Marilyn Prasner Award recipient, Ricky Spector, and I'm proud to present for your listening pleasure, the Conduit Street Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. My name is Kevin Canali. I'm the policy associate here at MAKO and I am joined by my co-host, MAKO's executive director, Michael Sanderson.
1: Glad to be back, Kevin.
0: Yeah, we've been off the air for a month, Michael. What's been going on? (laughs)
1: Um, I don't know. We posted something on our website with uh, you know a picture of the podcast with sort of thermometers sticking out of our mouths. I I, I don't know about you, but uh, I got hit by some weird super bug that's been going around Annapolis. and yeah. was sort of laid out for all close to two weeks. Here. Yeah,
0: I I definitely was hit by that as well. Not not quite as long yeah. as you, but still, it, it was a nightmare.
1: I don't know. And, and speaking of nightmares, I, I, I just, I confess, I'm like a rotten, sick person. So when I when I feel sick, I, I mean, I have a terrible mood and I'm very needy and so forth. So my wife and kids got to, got to put up with uh, an extra helping of dad being around the house. So i so glad to be back in the office, back in the swing of things and uh, back on the air.
0: Yeah, I am not the uh, best <laughs> sick person either. My wife tells me that I'm awful when I'm sick. Sick. My <laughs> mood is terrible. And again, yeah, I'm very needy. So right. We'll hold it together for this. We'll hold it together for this. <laughs> anyway, uh, on the podcast today, we are going to talk about election issues, primarily the primary ballot battle. Uh, Valerie Irvin has uh, sued the state to try and get her name on the ballot to replace that of former county executive Kevin Kamenetz. And Michael, I don't think you've had a chance to uh, weigh in yet on the podcast about the sudden passing of Former county executive Kevin Kamenetz from Baltimore County, Barbara and I uh, did talk about that a bit on the last episode. But anything you want to say about uh, Kevin Kamenetz?
1: I think I mean, like, like everybody's reaction. It was it was quite a shock. Um, so so that you know that was everybody's first reaction. I I think I would join with an awful lot of people reflecting on the 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 time he spent and the commitment he had to public service and his many years i mean he he had, had had become really the longest serving member in county government uh, in in the state of Maryland and was you know was really proud of that when when he and i went and, and visited county elected officials across Maryland last year while he was serving as MACO president uh, he was really proud to talk about his time on the county council and all that he got from that, and the things he accomplished through the legislative branch, and then in his second term as a county executive, being able to do things from from the other side of county government, and you know, the interactions with with large and small jurisdictions across the state, uh, he was really committed to all that sort of thing. He was also really committed to to the association, and and took that. I mean, not to get technical, but that, that sort of fiduciary responsibility—you show up as, as a member of the board of directors for a body like Mako. That means you own it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're—you know—we work here and we're we're the employees and try and manage things day to day. But but the, the board of directors really owns the organization, and, and he's one of those people who took that really seriously. And 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 you know, hats off for 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 the things he's he's left behind i think you know, the county's doing a number of things to as, as remembrances and i think that's that's well earned
0: yeah we just heard that they will be naming a park in his honor he was certainly a county government guy always very good to mako and to all of the counties as you mentioned um again just a tragic passing and um just absolutely shocking but back on uh the election issue so valerie Irvin was his running mate uh, unfortunately, he passed away suddenly, and she had to decide whether or not she wanted to run. She decided to run. However, her name was not on the ballot. We have some updates there. We'll talk about what's going on with that primary ballot battle. Then we'll get into the Kerwin Commission. They have reconvened. We have some updates there. We'll discuss the last meeting and, and look ahead. We'll also talk about the Win decision. Uh, this is a tax issue. I'm sure many of you have heard about the Win case uh, the Supreme Court decided that case a few years ago. There is a new development. We'll get into that, and then we'll talk a little bit about our summer conference, which is upcoming. It's coming up here in August. We'll talk about some sessions and preview our conference. But Michael, let's start with this primary ballot issue. And again, Valerie Irvin um, was sued the state to try and force the state Board of Elections to print new ballots or place stickers over the name of Kevin Cavanets and replace them with her name, so that when you go to the polls and you want to vote for Valerie Irvin, you see her name on the ballot and you don't see a sign that says, right. vote for Kevin Kamenetz, and that means you're going to vote for Valerie Irvin.
1: All right. It's a, I mean, it's a it's a tricky situation. I mean, adding difficult logistics to what is already a sort of heart-wrenching you know, situation that the voters and the political structure are all in with with Mr. Kaminitz's passing. Now, with with Ms. Irvin as a as a declared candidate, uh, that the state faces a real challenge. Um, and as we've read in the papers, the mechanics of reprinting the ballots. Not only is that a difficult and costly thing to do this late in the game, but as it turns out the actual printing of the ballots through the the supplier that we work with to have the right kind of paper for the for the machines that you know where you, where you, you score the ballots and so forth and to be to be read through a scanner um, it, it just you know the nuts and bolts were awfully difficult as well so you know the, the first round of the court decision I mean, it 's interesting all these former county officials uh, you know yeah. uh, Valerie Irvin is a former county council member in, in Montgomery County, and actually the, the the judge who decided on on the the issue was a former Anne Arundel County council member as well. So all these people from county government uh, involved in the middle of this 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 whole issue, but. Um, it, it, it looks as 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 of our recording today. It, it looks as though she doesn't plan to file any further appeals. I, I don't think that necessarily means this story is over. Right. But as far as what if, what are things going to look like for the election ahead, I think we know what the pieces of paper and the nuts and bolts will look like.
0: Yeah. So the judge uh, sided with the state. Uh, the state board of elections said that they did not have enough time to reprint these ballots and that they had already mailed. Absentee ballots uh, overseas, which had to be done 45 days before the election, um, and again you mentioned that they didn't have the paper uh, and they couldn't get the paper from the supplier to reprint these ballots. And I think the issue with the stickers was that if you put those into the voting machines to the the, the vote counters, it wouldn't be able to read right. uh, a sticker if someone marked a ballot with a sticker on it. So lots of logistical issues there. Also, uh, reprinting the ballots, I think the estimate was around 3.5 million counties would be on the hook for half of that money right
1: right so so that's you know that's a long standing cost split between the state and county governments for the voting machines and all the accoutrements come with them so uh, that's you know that ends up being another piece uh, another piece of this conversation i don't think you want cost itself to drive the entire conversation but right. it's part it's part of the discussion
0: yeah there are 747 uh, different configurations of the primary ballot she- so um, all those would have to be reprinted, proofed, the right, whole thing, right. and the uh, judge ruled that there's just not enough time to do it. So uh, her name will not be on the ballot, although they will have signs in each polling location that are telling voters, look, this is what you need to do if you want to vote for Valerie Irvin. I don't think the story's over either. I know she talked a little bit about the possibility of contesting the election results uh, should she not prevail. So keep an eye on this one. I don't think this is over.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe a function of what do the numbers look like in the final analysis, and if it seems that a little bit of confusion or a bit, a little bit of misplaced voter intent uh, might have made the difference in this election, then this could, this could be go on after the date of the primary.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So, Michael, let's talk about the Kerwin Commission. We have talked a lot about the Kerwin Commission, which uh, is the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. The chair of the commission, Dr. Kerwin, um, so we 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 call it the Kerwin Commission because of Dr. Kerwin. They have reconvened. They took a break uh, during the legislative session, and uh, just to backtrack a bit, they had released some preliminary recommendations. We've talked about that on previous episodes. If you're interested, you can go back and take a listen. We also have a ton of coverage on our blog, conduitstreet.mdcounties.org. Just search Kerwin. They've reconvened, and now, Michael, they are breaking into subgroups to try and hammer out some of the details. So that they can, those subgroups can then come back to the commission and they can finalize their recommendations and actually cost these recommendations out. So
1: we, we've talked a little bit about this and I think both you and I and other county stakeholders, those of us who, who are, you know, work for counties or are thinking about county governments and are sitting in the audience as, as stakeholders in all this, I think all of us are struck by the sheer volume of stuff that this group wants to get through by the end of this calendar year. And remember, they already asked, they've already punted into a third year. They were right. supposed to have been done last fall. Uh, but it seems like every time they have another meeting, uh, there are, it's almost like there's more questions than answers. Right. So, um, and that, I mean, it, to, to some degree, that's testament to the, the robust debate and conversation that the group's been having, but now they've broken into four groups and, on, on paper, it's like each group is going to be smaller and maybe a little more nimble and be able to work through things and bring some things to conclusion. Uh, I've been sitting in on the meetings of one of those four groups. They don't seem I, – I don't mean this in a pejorative way. They don't seem closer to conclusion after several hours of meetings um, talking about at, at-risk students, which mm-hmm. is one of several big and important components of what we what we do in the way we fund and invest in and hold accountable our our schools in in, in Maryland. So um, there's 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 quite a lot of of uh, heavy lifting
0: ahead. I mean, so many smart people with so many ideas, you know, when you get them all into a room, uh, one question leads to 10 questions. And, you know, I agree with you that there seem to be more questions now than answers. We still haven't seen um, any numbers or any formulas Uh, that could potentially be changed or amended. Um, I think that's what most people are interested in is the fiscal uh, impact of the Kerwin Commission. However, there has been a lot of talk now about the accountability aspect of this commission and how the commission's recommendations are going to be put into place and who is going to oversee that they're put into place. We've heard a, a discussion at the last meeting in the morning, they spent time talking about what that accountability structure may look like. Will it be a new board that could potentially be accountable to the General Assembly that's going to be in charge of making sure these recommendations are implemented properly? Or will this just be uh, a wing of the State Department or the Department of uh, Education? So I I think that's a really interesting question. And I know that we are very interested in the accountability aspect of the Kerwin Commission and how uh, schools will be held accountable, as well as uh, state and local governments, And uh, and teachers and so forth. So, Michael, what are your thoughts about this accountability piece and how this all may play out?
1: Well, number one, I mean, putting this is the this is the county podcast. So on, on a certain level, this really isn't our game. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of people in the room, in the audience for for meeting this commission, who are really deeply invested in this these issues of accountability, whatever whatever exactly that means. But the idea of how are we getting results, and the, how are we investing our money, and 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 how do we make decisions, and what do we what do we ma- want to make sure is available to children of different types and in different places and different ages and so forth. Right. These are these are certainly important issues. On a certain level, the counties, I think, cast as we're kind of cavalier on this stuff. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, the structure of education governance in Maryland gives county governments a really limited role here. We don't do curriculum. We don't make decisions about school safety or about, um, you know, what we do for different classes of special education kids, or what do you do when there's clusters of poverty or at risk students, or, you know, what kind of things do you invest for career opportunities for, for uh, teachers? I mean, this whole laundry list of things that the commission is invested in counties aren't really the decision makers, it's school boards, it's principals, and that's, that's as it ought to be. Right. So, um, so you know, we're, we're deeply invested in the financing and what, what, are we, what's the state financial commitment going to look like? What is, is the state potentially going to ask of county governments different than they do today? And, and what's that, you know, what's that going to look like? So, you know, to some degree, we're out of this debate over accountability, but you can't help but follow it because that's really the, the centerpiece show. Um, this, this concept of bringing, uh, you know, creating a new board mm-hmm. that would be basically the the implementation body for all the reforms that the commission has in mind. This is going to be years. This, right. this is not going to be in two years. All the stuff is together. This is going to be a four, six, eight, ten year rollout of whatever initiatives they have in mind for the teaching profession and for the way we, you know, the way we hold schools and school systems accountable for outcomes and things like that. Um, you know, the idea of there being a new board, something different than the current state board of education to be, you know, on the top of that pyramid mm-hmm. is an intriguing idea, both practically and, to be honest, politically.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the most controversial questions there is whether or not whichever oversight body will have the authority uh, to oversee the implementation process will be able to withhold new funding from jurisdictions that fail to implement the commission's recommendations in a timely manner. That authority currently rests with the State Board of Education. However, if a new board is created to oversee this process, um, they could have that ability to withhold uh, new funding for schools that do not implement the recommendations the way that they'd like to see them implemented. I think that's a really interesting question, yeah. and it's one that right. they're going to have to grapple with.
1: Well, there's almost nothing trickier, particularly in education, maybe, maybe more so than any other public service. You want to say, OK, we want the decision makers at the local level in a given school or in a given school system, we want the local decision makers to be doing certain things to follow a plan that we collectively have decided. I mean, that's what we're talking about at the, with with accountability. We want, we want, you know, this, this, this countywide school system to offer these opportunities for teachers, so that we'll have more highly qualified, you know, fully certificated teachers by a certain time, and that that's going to improve the learning experience in the classroom. Okay, we that's that's one of the things we want. Well, what happens if that doesn't happen? Right. So if you have mistakes or or errors or you know failures by management, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then you say, well, we'll withhold funding. That's the obvious obvious stick that you have to use. Right. Then you withhold funding and who really ends up losing out? It ends up being the kids. I mean the kids have to do without services or they do without extra benefits that might have been there if that funding had shown up. So there's a mismatch between who really feels – I mean maybe some of it ends up being the school administrators or the teachers or whoever is at fault for missing a target
0: but or not. But that all trickles down to the kids. Yeah,
1: yeah right, right. So, so as, as, a, as a practical matter, um, that's really tough. Accountability in. Education um, and having having the pinch be felt by the actor as opposed to the student that's a that's a fine line
0: <laughs> really difficult I do agree you have to have the stick you know as well as the <laughs> carrot but the question is how do you do that and how do you do it in a way that kids won't be impacted and that kids uh, you know won't be on the hook for the mistakes of the administration or whatnot the teachers but again th- this is a question they, they started to talk about in the morning they spent a good deal of time. And at the end of that discussion, they really didn't get anywhere. There were differing opinions in the room. So I think this is another one that is going to be controversial and it's going to take a good amount of time. Add this to the list of things that they have right. to do. Because this one is not going to be easy.
1: But if, but if if the commission spends half of its time, if they're going to meet effectively once a month, mm-hmm. and we're in the month of June now, if they meet in June and July and August and September, and then September is roughly the time to pull the switch and start talking numbers and, and do that kind of stuff right. and cost all this stuff out. That's the phrase we keep hearing. We're right. going to cost right. everything out, right? It, it, so you got maybe three or four more meetings where you can spend maybe half of the time talking about accountability systems and so forth, then... You need to write a report, and from that report, there needs to be recommendations or things like that that the members of the commission would either, by consensus or by a vote, agree with. Then you got to turn that into legislation. The stuff doesn't happen by just writing a report. Right. You turn it into legislation. Then you need votes in the House, votes in the Senate. Uh, th- there's an awful lot of steps between where we sit right now and, in theory, a bill that takes effect less than a year from today.
0: Yeah, it's, it's going to be really <laughs> tricky. I mean they, they have to think about so many issues here. You know, like you said, you need the votes. And So you have to, I think, be careful about what you're doing in certain areas because you don't want to lose those votes that you're going to need to pass a bill. So lots of moving parts here. The uh, work groups do continue to meet. Uh, at the end of the last meeting, Dr. Kerwin asked each group how many more meetings they thought they needed before they could come back to the full commission. Um, some of the group said, yeah, we can do it in a couple months. But then a fingers few said, and toes there. Yeah, man. <laughs> right. They, they're trying to count. I mean, it, it's so I don't know how they're going to jam all this in. But Dr. Kerwin is very confident that they'll be able to do so. The staff's working very hard uh, to try and iron out these details so that they can ultimately cost these recommendations out. And we can see the spreadsheets with all the numbers and the colors and look at the effects. But We do have a long way until we get to that point, and um, we'll see what happens. But they will be meeting again soon. We will keep you updated on their progress. And, of course, we're all looking forward to that final report and those final recommendations that – will then be turned into legislation and then it will be handed over to the general assembly. So, so we're
1: not, we're not ready to start making any predictions about this timetable yet. Right. I mean, last fall, last fall we got out ahead and we said, we don't think Kerwin can be done by December of, of uh, 17. And quite frankly,
0: (laughs) we're not too far from where we were back then. They haven't really discussed numbers or formulas or anything like that. Funding from state and counties, so, I mean, they are very confident they're going to get this done by the fall, right. but they have a lot of work to do.
1: All right. All right. We won't, we won't make a call there. Not yet. But I'm, you know, I'm looking at that timetable.
0: Yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that's fair. All right. We are going to go ahead and uh, take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the win case. We will also discuss a bit about our – Yay, up- taxes. So, yay, taxes. I know. People <laughs> love the taxes. We'll talk about our upcoming summer conference, all that and more after the break. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, let's get into the Win case. And if you want to Google this case, if you're not sure what it is, Wynn is spelled W-Y-N-N-E. And this is a major issue in Maryland. Um, back a few years ago, the Supreme Court took on a case, and this has to do with Maryland's personal income tax on state residents. Um, and, and, of course, our state income tax uh, consists of a state income tax and a local tax uh, for counties in Baltimore City. So residents of Maryland who pay that income tax to another state were allowed a credit against the state income tax, but not against the local tax. The Supreme Court then determined that this taxing scheme was unconstitutional because it discriminated in favor of interstate over interstate economic activity in violation of the Commerce Clause. Yeah, this right? gets a little thick. It yeah, is very right. thick, <laughs> but but the, essentially uh, this was a decision that has a major impact on Maryland. And there is a new wrinkle to this now. I think, you know, MAKO has been very involved in this. We've been asked – we were on the wrong side of this Supreme Court decision. Um, And, Michael, I know you've been involved with this for way more years than I have been. Um, What do you think about this this case? I mean can you give us a little bit of history here? And we have a new development this week.
1: Yeah, and without without beating the topic to death, the the question is basically this is unique to Maryland – that we have basically a state and county income taxes. There are other states where an individual city or a few counties have an add-on income tax, but there's no other state that's like Maryland, where everybody fills out when you fill out your state income tax form. There's a whole component to calculate a county income tax, and it's substantial. Most you know most county income tax rates are in the two and a half to three, three point two percent range, and that's a that's a substantial tax. Maryland has made a conscious decision. To use income taxes as opposed to property taxes, right. um, and we've you know we've we've made that decision to try not to be property tax hell like New Jersey or other states that are very very dependent on on property taxes exclusively. Anyway, mm-hmm. s- setting that aside. What this was all about is you live in Maryland, but you have a business that's elsewhere, or you you derive income from from stocks that you own that are coming from other states or whatnot. What if you've paid tax in California and you live in Maryland? Right. Uh, a lot of people have uh, have these complicated financial arrangements like that, and typically one of two things happens. Either you have a reciprocal arrangement where you just wash out one versus the other, or if you're not next door and don't have a, don't have a deal like that, then you pay taxes in the foreign state and you basically get to credit that amount against your home state. So lots of states do that. That's pretty much the norm. Mm-hmm. Maryland has this curiosity, though. We have an add-on tax, which in the in the Wins case was Howard County, Maryland. Pretty much everybody in, in the state of Maryland lives within a county. Mm-hmm. And so you pay a county income tax, um, which is not based on the source of the income. It's based on your
0: residence. Right. Um, so, the, what was happening was people were getting a credit against the state income tax, but not the local tax right, and that's what stirred this whole issue up right and that's what led all the way to the Supreme Court decision
1: right so and this was newfound territory the The debate before the u s Supreme Court was a really convoluted argument. They started talking about the policy of international tariffs and the dormant commerce clause and a variety of legal theories that we'd never really seen even aired in in Maryland before. Right. Right. Uh, so and anyhow, to, to cut to the chase, um, a, a few years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court said this scheme is unconstitutional. Maryland needs to be able to let that Maryland resident, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wynn and others similarly situated uh, declare a credit for the rest of their California taxes or Nebraska taxes or whatever against the county income tax as well. What that basically meant is this is a non-issue for state government, but it's a substantial issue for county governments and county – a lot of people – were receiving, you know, refiled their income taxes going back multiple years and claiming, okay, now under this the, this new interpretation, I'm due these back tax refunds. And so the, the Maryland comptroller had to issue a bunch of refund checks.
0: Right. So here we are today. And in 2014, the Budget Reconciliation and Financing Act altered the annual interest rate paid for those refunds. Um, right. it, it requires the comptroller's office to use an anu- annual interest rate uh, equal to the average prime rate of interest during FY15, which was 3%.
1: 3%. And the, and the, the theory here is when, when you put interest rates on taxes, like if, if you are overdue in paying your taxes – uh, the state assesses you a an aggressive interest rate as a strong incentive to pay. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to people who pay on time if other people decide, you know what, I'm just not going to pay now and I'll just – Float that for a while and pay when it's a little more convenient for me. Right. So, so the state charges you thirteen percent interest. That's a you know calculated based on certain things, but the state charges thirteen percent
0: if you're late. And, and if I remember correctly, there was a bill last session that would have done just that, right? And we were successful in, in fighting that off. I think the bill would have raised the rate to thirteen percent.
1: Um, It's actually the reverse. Um, what the right, right now, if you're late paying taxes, you pay 13%. And the reverse is if. If the the government made a mistake and now owes you money and you were inconvenienced, um, you you have the clock tick on the government making good on that payment, right. and you have a, the same high interest rate to say the government should pay up. Let's not have that check get lost in the shuffle for four months. So we charge the same aggressive interest rate for you know for the tax collector to mm-hmm. get the money back to the citizens. So if we made a mistake, whether it's the county or an income tax – in income taxes, this is this is the state and the comptroller's office. Um, if we made a mistake, we owe you the same aggressive interest that we would charge you. So what, what the legislation was about with the win interest rate mm-hmm. is – the General Assembly said this is different. This wasn't the comptroller, you know, screwing up or sitting on refunds. This was a matter of a whole new legal theory that didn't even exist until it got into the courts. And now you've got multi-year refunds. These people are going to get a cash bonanza exactly. if they're entitled to a thirteen percent interest rate uh, for multiple years of money where they had no idea. Most of the people who are refiling their forms in you know for the year FY eight, nine, 10, 11. They had no idea that they would somehow later be entitled to a refund with interest.
0: So, so. last week so, – so the comptroller has been paying 3 percent. Last week, the, the Maryland tax court ruled that providing taxpayers with a lower interest rate payments on win refunds uh, than, than they do on other refunds is unconstitutional because it violates the commerce cause. So now the new interest rate – will be 13%. All
1: right, so that means that the comptroller is duty-bound under this ruling to go back to all these people who already got their refund checks. So, you already got your, you know, your extra $2,000 in taxes plus a couple years worth of interest because you were inconvenienced, you didn't have this for a few years, so you got 3% by a couple of years or whatever. Right. Now, we got to issue that person another check saying, "No, here's an extra stack of interest because we're going to assess punitive interest on the state who had no idea that the Supreme Court would one day find this practice to be wrong.
0: And what kind of money are we looking at? What kind of hit for the counties if this if this ruling holds up?
1: It looks like it's about 30 or 40 million bucks. So this is not chicken feed. Um, uh, you know, most of these are complicated tax forms. They're relatively high income earners. So... I mean, as, as a practical matter, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, we know there's an ongoing effect of this case. We've already kind of adjusted our budgets for, you know, for the ongoing effect. We've got to pay a payback, a schedule to pay back the the reserve fund that the, that the uh, refunds were issued from. So this gets technically difficult. But what this comes down to is if the tax court ruling stays, then – taxpayers are out 30 or 40 million bucks of resources that we thought we had to pay for schools and for roads and for cops and the things that county governments do. And instead, that money is going to go back to a handful of well-off taxpayers who had no idea they were going to get a cash bonanza, and a refund plus this crazy multiple years of 13% interest. Nobody, Nobody's getting 13% interest on anything but, like, the junkiest bonds out
0: there. Right. So now <laughs> that this is in the hands of the attorney general, the Maryland attorney general, Brian Frost, it will be up to him to decide whether or not to appeal that decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the decision-making is kind of weird here. This happens to be a matter that affects the bottom line of county governments, but nominally it's the comptroller who is the agency that collects income taxes. And the attorney general represents all the state agencies in matters of defending their practices and so forth. Mm -hmm. So so the decision will be that of the attorney general whether to pursue this further in the courts. Um, The tax court is kind of an anomaly in our judicial system, but decisions from the tax court can be appealed to the circuit court. Mm -hmm. So that would be a next step. And I think there's a 30-day window to make that decision decision so the AG will have to make a call there um, the counties are I think prepared to voice in and say we think the tax court got this wrong there there's a good argument to treat this differently than just we were sitting on we were sitting on your refund check a long time you you deserve to be uh, compensated for that
0: so counties can uh, give their opinion uh, they can file briefs amicus briefs um, even though the attorney general is responsible for handling this case, counties can still uh, submit that input to the court and say, "Look, we think they got it wrong. Here's why." So I am sure that some counties will do that. And yeah, I think
1: and we would expect that to yeah, happen. Yeah. yeah.
0: So we would uh, we would hope that uh, the case will be appealed against about thirty million dollars that we're talking about. And as Michael said, though, uh, most of the counties have adjusted uh, their budgets so that, uh, in anticipation. Uh, of the win issue. So it is a lot of money. It's $30 million. It's a big deal. And I I think we're going to have to wait and see how this plays out moving forward. Yep. All right. So let's, Michael, let's talk a little bit about MAKO's upcoming summer conference, our annual summer conference. The theme this year is Water, Water Everywhere. The conference will take place from August 15th through August 18th in Ocean City, Maryland at the Roland Powell Convention Center. Michael, I'm very excited. I think... Uh, Most counties are talking about the budgets, and they're watching the elections, of course, that are upcoming. Um, We're doing that, too. But on top of that, I think you can feel the buzz in the office that we are approaching summer conference. The boxes are starting to pile up in the hallway here with all the the swag and whatnot. Um, I'm really excited about this conference. Uh, The brochure is online for anybody who'd like to take a look, mdcounties.org. And uh, we do have a special podcast session from the summer conference. Are you pumped about the podcast <laughs> session?
1: I think it'll, it'll be interesting. I mean, yeah. I, what we want to do is—we're okay, happy with this offering, and we're—you know—we're getting followers and listeners to the podcast. And I think we're reaching some people who don't necessarily, you know, read the stuff that we're writing and whatnot. I mean, if this is a medium that reaches some people, that's great. And if if people are interested in counties or just in Maryland politics, and we're we're filling some Kind of a need. That's that's terrific. What we want to try and do is shine some light on this to the people who come to our conferences. Mm -hmm. So so we'll 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 get into a room. We'll talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of recording, assembling, and hosting a podcast. Uh, We'll do a conversation uh, on a topic that's relevant to county governments and kind of you know know, do a live version right in front of in front of an audience Mm -hmm. um, and turn that into some some stuff that we actually can put in a can and and you know get out on the airwaves. I think it'll be neat.
0: I think it'll be great. And and so many other great sessions. I mean we had a meeting today kind of going over all the sessions and the speakers and the moderators. Yeah, and we're loaded. It's loaded. I mean it's really it's really great. And well, we have our tech expos coming again. I think that was a huge hit last year. That'll be on Wednesday. And that just sets the tone for the, the rest of the conference.
1: Right. And and I mean it's one of the things I always say is, I mean, our conferences thrive in part because there's something for everybody. And if if you're really a technology and data kind of person, you're going to be all loaded up on Wednesday with all sorts of gadgetry and GIS and dark data and all these different topics that mm-hmm. that's going to be right up your alley. And then you you flip through the program and you're going to find more and more stuff on the following day. It's just going to spill over from there. Um, this, the, this water theme, you know, we, I mean, sometimes we pick sort of a vanilla generic theme for, for an election year in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, this just, it connects to so many different things like our, our, our Park and rec departments. Um, Our, you know, our, our uh, our affiliate of of park and rec directors are going to talk about water-based activities as part of an active recreation program, and you know, both you know swimming and boating and kayaking and and you know all these other all these other sorts of things. Um, I, I just think top to bottom, whether it's whether it's the nuts and bolts of county government or sort of the hot political issues of the day, we got a little bit of all those things and. I I don't know, this, 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 this conference program is so loaded with water puns. It's unbelievable. It is, it is, we're drowning and there is, it's, yeah you know, the, the the rising tide and the boats and the charting the course and the navigating and the rains and the storms. Like a bridge over tra- yeah, troubled water. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's everywhere.
0: <laughs> and, and especially, I think it's great because Maryland, our economy, uh, water plays an enormous role in driving the Maryland economy. And I think this conference is really going to highlight that role and just the impact that water plays in our everyday lives and how that all comes back to county government right
1: i mean we're i mean we typically on on friday morning of this summer conference we have back-to-back general sessions and these are the sort of big plenary big room you know hundreds of people in the audience and everybody's got their you know their 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 uh clipboards and all their you know taking notes and all this kind of stuff and like two back-to-back sessions one is going to be talking about sort of the health of the Chesapeake Bay and our our watershed and our responsibility and stewardship and where we are and where we're going with the health of our you know of that watershed okay that's a water topic Mm -hmm. and I mean theoretically you could have in the background as those speakers are talking a map of the Chesapeake Bay and you could be looking at it as an environmental issue and as a stewardship issue And then an hour later in the same room, we're gonna have the same seats filled, talking about the economy and the tourism and the opportunity that come from being around the Chesapeake Bay and how it drives the lifestyles and the quality of life, but workplaces and you know so many you know so many economic opportunities and so forth. You could have the same map in the background, but now it's a conversation about the Maryland economy. Right. And you're really all you're still talking about. About the same water, the same waterways, and how you know this state, maybe more than any state in the country, is at, we are as married to our waterways as, as, as
0: anybody in the world, I think. I, I would certainly agree with that. It plays a role every single day in everything that we do. So I'm really looking forward to the summer conference. I'm looking forward to the podcast session and all of these other great sessions that we're going to have. But particularly if you are interested in the podcast, I know I've heard from a few counties who are interested in maybe launching their own podcast. This is going to be a great... Venue for you to come and see how we do it. I don't know if we're the best at it, but we're kind of figuring it out as we go along. I think I think we've gotten okay.
1: Hey, maybe but, and if, if nothing else, we can convince people you don't have to be geniuses to figure this out. Because look at the two of us. Yeah, I, I mean, that'll we're be pretty, all thumbs, that'll and, be pretty clear. and we're able able to actually uh, put some sort of a product out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I
0: think we've done okay, but we're getting better as we go along. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, Michael, uh, let's. So we, we talked about the summer conference um, on that podcast theme. The Virginia Association of Counties, they were up here a few months ago... They saw the setup that we had with the podcast. They asked lots of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, we gave them some information. I talked to them a couple weeks ago. They were going to actually launch the podcast, and I was very excited for them. Um, and they actually did. And you yep. got to listen. I yep. thought yep. it was awesome.
1: Right. And no, I think I, I think hats off to to, to our, our sister association to the south. Vaco um, has has put together. I think they're trying to fit a, a somewhat different need than we are, but you know, they're going to try and they're going to try and reach their audience in in the same. Way, But I think I think they're sold that this is a, a useful medium. So the county pulse is the name of their podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the episode they ran uh, just a little while ago was talking about the the sort of this budget impasse that that Virginia is in the midst of. They do a, a, a biennial budget and, and they spend an entire year once every couple of years. Their legislature is all budget and all fiscal stuff. And uh, they've got you know they've got a whole lot of things snarled up fiscally. I got to say, after listening to their pod, I mean, we have our own problems. We got these list of things we're talking about tax reform and all these education commitments and so forth. And not everything's apples to apples, but I don't envy the situation for for Dean Lynch and and no. Team Vaco down down in Richmond. They got to they got to keep above uh, some rising tides of their own. I'll huh? tell you what,
0: yeah, that was really interesting. <laughs> uh, it, it, it sounds like quite a mess, but yeah, give it a listen at the county poll. Uh, Virginia Association of Counties they have done a great job it seems like this podcast stuff is starting to catch on we'll see I think so All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. As long as Michael is not sick or his family (laughs) is not sick, I think he got everybody sick, but that's okay. I'll I'll try to stay healthy as well. We should be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, We'll have a lot more to talk about with Kerwin Commission. We have the primary election coming up. Obviously, that's a hot topic. Uh, And then we'll also uh, obviously talk about some more about the summer conference. And something's always coming up. There's always stuff to talk about. But for today, that'll do it for Michael and Kevin. We'll talk to you all soon.